Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dudes. 1956 was called the Year of the Thaw in the Soviet Union. Early that year, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev delivered a stunning speech denouncing the late dictator Joseph Stalin. But by the end of that year, Soviet troops had crushed an anti-communist uprising in Hungary. Also that year, Marvin Kolb was a young diplomatic attaché in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, meeting with Russian students and leaders, including Khrushchev himself. In his memoir published by the Brookings Institution Press, The Year I Was Peter the Great, Kolb recounts his experience in a country in transition and upheaval. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Press, talks with Marvin in the interview. Also in this episode, Wessel's Economic Update, featuring David Wessel's thoughts on a recent event featuring former Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen in conversation with her predecessor, Ben Bernanke, now both at Brookings. Also, Princeton economist Alan Kruger discusses his new paper for the Hamilton Project at Brookings about protecting low-income workers from firms that use their market power to suppress wages. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, here's Bill and Marvin. Thank you, Fred, and welcome, Marvin. Good to see you. My pleasure to be here. Let's start with the title of your book, The Year I Was Peter the Great. Assure listeners that they're not going to be reading a book that is a fable. Tell the story of the title. Well, it's a family title, actually. I couldn't think of a title for the book. And I had maybe 13 or 14 running through my mind, And it was a family holiday. I forgot exactly which one it was. But my children came up from South Carolina, and then my daughter, who lives here, and her husband and son, we were sitting around the living room. And I said, this is what the book is about. It's about me in Russia in 1956. And somebody said, well, tell me a story about it. So I told them the story about Peter the Great and Khrushchev and... I were a great ambassador there, Charles Bolin. And they said, Peter the Great, hmm. And then my son-in-law, who teaches at the University of South Carolina, said, how about the year I was Peter the Great? And I said, that's ridiculous. I wasn't <laughs> Peter the Great. And he said, no, 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 everybody knows you're not Peter the Great, but there you were being taken and you're the name and all that. So I thought about it that night. I thought about it half the night, in fact, and then I decided, the year I was Peter the Great. That sounds really neat. I liked it. (laughs) We'll come back to why you were Peter the Great that year a little bit later in the interview, because there's a great story there, too. You begin about why you wrote a memoir, because you've been a journalist all your life, an observer, not an I person. It's not about you. It's not about me. Not someone who's in the story. Why did you write it? Well... I think the short answer to that question is that after any number of books and writing about Russia and China and the Vietnam War and the Middle East Wars and all that, I had been asked time and time again over the last 10 or 15 years, you have had a very interesting life. You've been a reporter. You've covered all of these fascinating stories. You were there. Why don't you tell us a story about you and what it is that you saw and what it is that you reported. And I thought about that, and I kept saying no, because in my mind, a reporter, which is what I am, writes about what he sees, what he understands, what he can analyze honestly, 
but he doesn't write about himself. He is not the story. Mm -hmm. And then along came these two wonderful people, a granddaughter and a grandson. And when they were about 10 and 8, they began to get at me. And I think they were put up to it by my two daughters, their mothers. And I think the, my daughters wanted me to write this book. But they wanted me to write about me. And I didn't want to do that. And the compromise was that I would write about what it is that I saw, that I was the eyes of the reader, mm -hmm. the ears of the reader, but the story was not me. The story was what it is that I saw, what I understood to be the case. So I still rationalize this all to say that I'm still a reporter. But the idea was with the Peter the Great book, I am still very much part of the story. It is a story. The book is about me in Russia in 56 and how I got there. And it is, in a larger sense, a story about the early days of the Cold War and a story about how a young American gets interested in Russia and then through a series of lucky breaks, I suddenly find myself in Russia at a moment when Russia is going through a phenomenal change. And I was very lucky in that the reporter in me, as I was there, chose to take notes mm. about what it is that I heard, who I met, what kind of conversations I got into. And because my job was at the United States Embassy in Moscow, I had a diplomatic passport. That put me in a world of diplomacy, but diplomacy that was itself in a world of revolutionary type upheaval in Russia. And so I could see it as a young American who spoke Russian and met other young people, Russians. And I think because I spoke Russian well enough, they knew I was an American. There was no deception here. But because I was young, unattached, and just wanting to learn and be excited about what it is that was happening, they talked to me. And it seems as if almost everybody I met talked to me, sometimes from memory, sometimes because I wrote these conversations down. I thought that other people would like to know about these things, too. I met the leaders of the Soviet Union. I met students. I met husbands, wives, priests, all kinds of people, and I was thrilled to do so. You're a reporter in the end, even in your own memoir. You're an yes. eyewitness to history there. But I'm glad that you did spend a little bit of time at the beginning talking about you yourself. You were born in New York, the son of immigrants yes. from Ukraine and Poland, your father a tailor. Your early life was in the midst of the Great Depression. You actually tell us a few stories of growing up in that time, your father's search for work, yes. your search for milk bottles. Yes. The time is branded into you. Well, you cannot have lived through that period of time without it leaving a very... I was about to say a deep scar, but it's not a scar. It is a deep, lasting impression of what it is when people live in a society that is in upheaval and these people have no money. It's a very hard thing, I believe, for people today to understand what that sentence means. Some people can say, well, we don't have a lot of money. You don't have a lot, but you may have 
$200 in the bank, or you may have 25 cents in your pocket. When you have nothing in your pocket or in the bank, you have to begin to think about life in a totally different way. And for me, it was as a kid. I was born in 1930, so we were deep into the Depression in 1933, 4, 5, 6. And I was all of 4, 5, 6 at that time. But I remember clearly that my father was a tailor, as you said, to get from where we lived in the Bronx down to where he could possibly get a job, which was in the Garment Center in Midtown Manhattan. You needed a nickel to get on the subway. The only way I could contribute as a kid was to get up at 4 or 5 in the morning and go downstairs, and there were strategically placed garbage pails filled up with the stuff that people threw out the day before. If you found a milk bottle, an empty milk bottle in the garbage pail, you could get a penny for that milk bottle if you brought it to a grocer. So I went around at 4, 5, 6 in the morning and went through these ash cans, would find five empty bottles, if I was lucky, mm-hmm. bring it to the grocer at, at 6 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock when the grocer would open the store, give him the five bottles. He'd give me a nickel, and I'd run to our apartment, give the nickel to my father, which meant he could get downtown to try to get a job. It didn't mean you would would. get one. And I can tell you, Bill, that I, years later, it took me a long time to realize that what would have happened to my father if he had gone downtown and not found a job? How would he have got home? I never even thought about it at the time. I thought, see, my father was a funny man. He had a deep, passionate, in his way, allegiance to America. He truly loved this country. So he could not think of anything bad about it, even when we were in the depths of the Depression. Wow. So if I were to say something to him as a kid that was negative, he'd stop me. Mm. And he would say something like, I don't remember exact words, but he would say something like, You don't understand. If you had been born in Girardov, the small town in Poland where I was born, you would understand what it means to be poor, really poor. Here we have a chance. I can go downtown, and there's a shot that I can get a job because I'm a good tailor. And if I can't, I'll be back tomorrow. But it was a marvelous, deep patriotism of an immigrant. And a faith in America, too. Oh, total. In your early pages, too, you talk about high school and then going on to the City University of New York, the Harvard of the Proletariat, as as it was called. (laughs) The time you went was the home to students who went on to become preeminent scholars like Irving Howe, Daniel Bell, Nathan Glazier, Irving Kristol, who you saw there, too. All public intellectuals, too, is something that's disappeared, it seems, now. These were some formative years for you, it seems, from the book, and they included one story you tell in the book that is so intensely personal and meaningful for anyone who writes, and that's the story of Professor Goodman. 
Well, Professor Teddy Goodman was a wonderful teacher, and I will never forget him, but he drove me to distraction. <laughs> he was an English teacher, and he thought that if you read and you understood James Joyce, the Irish writer, Irish writer yeah. if you could understand his brilliance, you could understand what real writing was all about. And we had to write four short stories in the course of a semester. And you would read that short story in front of the class. The class would make a contribution, that's good or bad, why'd you write this, why that? And then Goodman, who would pace in the back of the room and you saw this little pudgy figure walking back and forth. And finally, when everyone was finished with their critiques, he would walk to the front of the room. And in my case, he looked up at me with a strange look. And he said, may I have your paper, please? And I gave it to him and he said, Marvin Calvi said, this is a great story. And my heart jumped up with excitement. And then in one instant, he threw it into the wastebasket. And he said, for the wastebasket. And I looked at him and burst into tears and raced from the room. And as I was outside, I heard him shouting after me, Calb, all you would ever be in life is a journalist, which was the, <laughs> the worst insult he felt he could pass on anybody. But he produced more journalists than he did really. Uh, you got that right, though. <laughs> <laughs> so you graduate and go to Harvard for graduate school at the Russian Research Center. But your graduate career is short-circuited. You join the Army this yes. is, uh, during the Korean War. Yes. Which then sets into your background something that helps get you to the Soviet Union. Because as soon as you leave the Army and you come back to Harvard, you're asked to go to Moscow out of the blue. But you almost didn't go. Well, I almost didn't go because, as usual, I would check with my parents, and I knew that my mother would be very much against it, so it very much ended up being, what would my father say? And, of course, he always was the great adventurer, and he said, go. And my mother wasn't happy with it, but I did go, and within a matter of two or three weeks was in Moscow, which was bitterly cold when I got there. It's 42 below zero. It's hard even to imagine that kind of cold. And I went down to Red Square. I was being followed by a KGB guy. I went into this large department store on Red Square called Gum, and I saw an ice cream vendor. And I bought two ice cream cones, and I just gave one of them to him, just reaching back with it. He took it. He didn't say a word. He just kept licking up in his ice cream the way I did. And I realized at that moment that if people like ice cream, they can't be too bad. Hmm. And so that was the beginning of my adventures in Russia. Here's senior fellow David Wessel with Lessons Learned from a recent conversation at Brookings featuring Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Janet Yellen recently joined us here at Brookings after an impressive career, culminating with four years as chair of the Federal Reserve. One can learn a lot about monetary policy or labor markets from Janet Yellen, but I think one also can learn a lot about leadership from listening to her 
as I did the other day when she was interviewed by her predecessor, Ben Bernanke. So here are some audio excerpts from that conversation and the lessons to be learned about leadership. Some important people with big jobs have a very hard time ever acknowledging they make mistakes. They seem to think it diminishes them, when, in my view, the opposite is true. So I was intrigued, indeed impressed, to hear Janet Yellen volunteer three times when she was wrong. The first was when Alan Greenspan showed her the text of his December 1996 speech in which he suggested the stock market might be afflicted with irrational exuberance. Alan was also very focused on the stock market at the time, and he gave his famous irrational exuberance speech, I believe it was the fall of 96. He showed it to me in advance, and he asked me my opinion. And I read this long, dry speech, and I think it was something like page 26 of this speech he was going to give in the evening. I think it was at the American Enterprise Institute. And there was this reference to irrational exuberance, and I thought, nobody is going to be awake by the time he gets to this. And this is really just deeply buried. And I, I told him I thought this was simply too mild and nobody would get the point. And that was an error in judgment on my part. Um, he gave the speech and the stock market immediately swooned. The lesson? One, when the Fed chair ventures an opinion, however tentative about the stock market, people do listen. Janet Yellen, as a result, chose her words very carefully when she became chair of the Fed. Two, as Greenspan discovered, the impact may be temporary. Stocks quickly rebounded after his 1996 speech, and they kept going up for a few years. So if the Fed really wants to burst a stock market bubble, it has to do more than just talk. The second time she was wrong was in the late 90s, when she was a governor of the Federal Reserve, before she left to chair President Clinton's Council of Economic Advisors. She thought Alan Greenspan was too reluctant to raise interest rates as the unemployment rate fell and fell. She was worried about inflation, and she told him so. And so for the last couple of years that I was at the Fed, unemployment was falling. It was falling below levels that were then thought to be the level of the longer, the narrower, longer run normal rate of unemployment. Inflation was already running above 2%, but it had come down. And many of us, including Alan, were anxious to make sure that inflation did keep coming down gradually over time and not raising rates when the unemployment rate was falling ever lower struck almost everyone on the FOMC as a mistake. And I will have to say that I fell into the same category. I, too, thought it was a mistake by the fall of 1996. I went to Allen and basically said, I'm willing to support you in not raising rates at this meeting, but I really, I doubt that I'm going to be able to support this very much longer. I think the case is there to raise rates. Well, again, I turned out to be wrong. There was perhaps one rate increase from then until late into the 90s. The unemployment rate continued to fall, and inflation continued to be very low. The lesson? Economic models depend on the past to predict the future, and that often works well. But sometimes today is different, and that's when we need a wise person as Fed chair. In the late 90s, Greenspan saw signs that the growth of productivity, output per hour of work, 
was quickening so the economy could grow faster without generating inflation. Yellen wasn't the only economist of the Fed who was skeptical. Greenspan turned out to be right. It's worth remembering that when you hear that today's low unemployment rate is sure to generate tomorrow's inflation so the Fed should be raising interest rates. It's likely, but sometimes the economy doesn't unfold as the economic models predict. The third time she was wrong was in the mid-2000s. She was president of the San Francisco Fed. She kept hearing that borrowers were finding it easier and easier to borrow, sometimes for very risky projects, and banks were so aggressive that they were waiving the provisions in loan agreements that usually protect them. You know, when I heard about this, I thought, you know, this is just really broad-based financial excess. So, you know, I was quite concerned about it. I think what I failed to appreciate was that if housing prices began to fall, I just really did not understand how vulnerable the financial system, and particularly the shadow banking system, how leveraged it was, how much maturity transformation there was, how much of this risk that we thought was being dispersed through the economy was really remaining on the books of these institutions. So I wrongly thought if housing prices fell a medium amount, it would do damage to the economy and the outlook but it would not destroy the core of the financial system. And I think that was a failure to appreciate the weaknesses. The lesson? Well, it's now obvious that the Fed and most of the rest of us failed to see what was happening in the mid-2000s. So we were stunned that the bursting of the housing bubble caused so much damage. But that was a decade ago, and memories fade. We need to be vigilant and very careful before we dismantle the protections against financial instability that we imposed after the crisis. And then there was one thing that Yellen got right. How to manage the Fed's 19-member Federal Open Market Committee where views on the economy, on monetary policy, on everything else often diverge. I loved how she described her leadership style there. What I do is I often compare the job of managing the committee to the issue a designer would have to face, who is trying to decide what's the right color to paint a room. And you got 19 people around the table, and you want to come up with a decision we can all live with on what color to paint the room. We go around the table, Ben, what would you like? You think baby blue is just absolutely ideal. David, what do you think? Chartreuse. It's a lovely, lovely color. And we go around the room like that. And the question is, are we ever going to converge? And I would feel my job is to get everybody to see that off-white is not a bad, not a bad (laughs) alternative. We could all learn something from that. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Visit our website to watch the video and download the transcript of this event. The book is about the Soviet Union in 1956, but if you could describe it in a few sentences, what was the Soviet Union like in 1956? And there's a reason you chose 1956 as a subtitle for your book, too. Well, the major thing that happened in 1956 was, aside from this bitter cold, was that Nikita Khrushchev was the leader of the Soviet Union at that time. Joseph Stalin, the Georgian 
bureaucrat who ran the Soviet Union for 29 years had died three years before. He was a brutal dictator. He did horrible things to the Russian people. Literally millions of people were killed because Stalin said so, and they didn't do anything. They were all what they called enemies of the people. And this was a horrible, horrible environment in which to live. And then Khrushchev knew all of this deep down, and he realized that if the Soviet Union were to do anything right, and it seemed the only thing they could do right was build missiles, and that's not going to make you can't eat missile for breakfast. He had to do something with the system, and that meant ending this grip that Stalin had over the entire country. And so in February, four weeks after I arrived there, having nothing to do with me, there was the 20th Party Congress. More than a 1,000 delegates showed up for this. And when they walked into this very large room, there had always been a huge portrait of Stalin hanging on the wall looking down at them. And this time, he was not there. And the thought in their minds was, my God, if they're downgrading Stalin, they could downgrade me. Their lives were hooked up with him. And if he was going down, they would go down. And that fear hung over the building. And Khrushchev stunned everybody by delivering a four-hour, no-holds-barred, destructive attack on Stalin and his legacy and his memory. And people quite literally died of heart attacks hearing this. They were so shocked by what they were hearing. I know from Russians told me afterward that you could see people popping nitroglycerin tablets into their mouths because their hearts were beating so irregularly. And the impact that this had on Russia, on the Russian people, was enormous. Historically, for the first time in their lives, they had a little bit of a taste of personal freedom. Because if you can knock Stalin down, that meant that maybe you could think for yourself. They didn't want to go too far, but a little bit. And it was an intoxicating experience. People began to talk about things in a way that they never had before. I just happened to be there listening, a very sympathetic listener. And many of them just poured their hearts out to me, and I wrote it down and put it into the book. And many of those stories covering the width from Moscow through Central Asia, those stories are there in the book. One of the stories you tell, there are many stories, but one of the stories you tell is meeting with Khrushchev himself on oh, July yes. 4th, yes. which is where we'll learn about Peter the Great. Right. Well, that's a fun story. On July 3rd, Ambassador Bolin got word from the foreign ministry that Khrushchev and the entire Politburo were going to come to our July 4th party. Well, it's very exciting, but it was also a sign of something big, because why would, first, why would he come? Then why would the entire Politburo come? At the embassy at that time, unfortunately, it was woefully understaffed. There were only four people at the embassy who spoke Russian. There was the ambassador who spoke beautiful Russian. Then there were two political officers, and then there was me. I was the kid on the block, but I did speak Russian. And the ambassador gave each of us an assignment. My assignment 
was when Khrushchev arrived with the Politburo, I was to look after Marshal Georgi Zhukov, one of the great heroes of World War II, the hero of the Battle of Stalingrad, the Minister of Defense, the man in charge of nuclear weapons. I was a PFC mm. in the United States Army. It was idiotic that I was sort of his host, mm -hmm. but there I was. And I prepared a little speech about how much I enjoyed my visit to Russia, and I am honored to meet the hero of Stalingrad. Could you talk? And we spent 45 minutes or so speaking about Stalingrad. Marshal Zhukov was a big drinker. He loved vodka. I didn't drink. So we worked out a deal with, <laughs> with this wonderful man named Tang, who was a Chinese butler. And the deal was that Tang served him vodka and me water. And I counted. Marshal Zhukov had eight vodkas in the 40 minutes that I spoke to him. It was sort of one after another. Mm -hmm. And there's a great Russian expression, dodna, which means, you know, in the glass goes right up down. So there's nothing left. And I did the same thing with the water. And then Khrushchev signaled that we were to come over to him because he wanted to leave. We walked over, and I could see that Marshal Zhukov was just a little tipsy, but I was not. And the marshal says to Khrushchev as we're walking over in a very loud voice, he said, Nikita Sergeyevich, I have finally found a young American who can drink like a Russian. And Khrushchev loved that line. Everybody laughed thought it was funny, and he walked over to me. Khrushchev was about 5'6", and I'm 6'3". So he looks up at me, and he says, how tall are you? And the thought of Peter the Great entered my mind because Zhukov and I had talked about Peter the Great's great victory at the Battle of Poltava in 1709, I believe. And so I said, I am six centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. Well, he loved that. Then we got into discussions of basketball, but he always from that time on referred to me as Piotr Veliki, Peter the Great Figure. And heck, it's a terrific title. <laughs> the year I, I was I, Peter the Great. <laughs> I think so too. The year you were Peter the Great, that year, 1956, uh, as bookended, by the thaw that began it. And then you were there at the end of 1956, too, when the version of the Soviet Union that many people had thought had gone away with that thaw returned. You called it the end of an arc. The repressive Soviet Union returned. How different is that repressive Soviet Union from Putin's Russia today? Well, it's significantly different in one respect, in that even in Russia, there can be sociological and economic change. And, of course, there has been. What has not changed, however, is that the Russian people are still stuck with a terribly authoritarian system of government so that the little bit of freedom that Khrushchev gave them and that Gorbachev in the 1980s Mikhail also, Gorbachev, who was the, the, yes, the head of the Soviet Union during yes. that time. And Gorbachev, in fact, called himself a child of the 60s. And that phrase meant that he was part of the Khrushchev era. And Gorbachev tried to put more freedom into the system, and he failed. 
Putin is totally different. He doesn't feel his job is to add freedom to the system. His job is to keep the system together. And in that way, he has introduced a very sophisticated form of authoritarianism, perhaps even you could say accurately dictatorship. And that was not what Khrushchev wanted. He wanted to go the other way. But Putin has gone back to a more traditional czarist system of government. I want to end, as you end the book, with you retelling your encounter with Edward R. Murrow, where Professor Goodman's epithet proves good. It began with you not taking a phone call. Right. Well, what happened is that when I finished this assignment in Moscow in January of 1957, I went back to Cambridge, went back to Harvard, continued my work on a PhD in Russian history. I was deep into it. I had no desire to do anything else. And one morning at the library, the librarian came over and said, Marvin, there's a guy on the phone who would like to speak to you. I said, no, no, I'm busy now. She said, he said he's Edward R. Murrow. I said, Edward R. Murrow was not calling me. That's ridiculous. Hang up on the guy. He's probably a drunk. Forget it. Mm-hmm. And I went back to my work, and she came back to me late in the afternoon, same day. said, Marvin, it's that same guy on the phone. You really ought to talk to him. <laughs> and in the back of my mind, I kept on, I said, maybe, but why? And I realized that my brother had met him in Burma, who knew? And I picked up the phone, and of course, the minute I heard his magnificent voice, I realized what a fool I had been, and I apologized. And he said, no, no, no. He said, I know you're very busy. <laughs> but he said, would you come down to New York tomorrow morning and talk to me? Nine o'clock, will you be there? I read your article in the New York Times. I had done a piece, and he liked it, and he wanted to talk to me about Russia. His secretary said, you've got a half hour And we spoke for three hours about Russia. And in the middle of it somewhere, he took out a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch, put it on the table, put two large glasses there, and began to pour. The look on my face was one probably of horror. And he looked at me and he said, oh, dear, you don't drink? I said, no, does that mean there's no job? He said, no, but it does make it that much more difficult. (laughs) And by the time I left after three hours, he offered me this job with total surprise to me. And within a period of a year and a half after that, I was back in Moscow as the CBS correspondent. And the book ends almost with a sense that there's another book to come after this that tells another story. Oh, yes. Well, I do have in mind, Bill, that this is the first of a couple of semi-books memoirs, talking about my career as a reporter in Russia, but then in the Vietnam War, then in the Middle East Wars, and then a story that has always fascinated me, the attempt by a Turkish killer named Mehmet Ali Aja to try to kill Pope John Paul II. Why would anyone try to kill a pope? And then I remembered will someone rid me of this meddlesome priest? Mm. And the only ones who could have said that were the Russians. Mm. Marvin, thank you. We only touched on the surface of your first volume, The Year I Was Peter the Great. It's a warm, humane, engrossing, year brought to life portrait of a journalist as a young man. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. 
You can learn more about Marvin Cobb's The Year I Was Peter the Great on our website and find it wherever you buy books. And finally today, you've heard about Monopoly, but what about Monopsony? Alan Kruger is Professor of Economics at Princeton University. He was Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Economic Policy during the Obama administration, and he was Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2011 to 2013. And now he's co-author with Eric Posner of a new paper from the Hamilton Project, a proposal for protecting low-income workers from monopsony and conclusion. Alan, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks so much. So we're going to talk about your paper, and I want to start out by asking you to please define these two terms in the title, monopsony and collusion. Funny, I got a note today from a New York Times writer who said I was the first person to use monopsony in the New York Times. Monopsony is the labor market equivalent of monopoly. So it's like in monopoly, we know that like one firm controls the sale of all of the widgets in the country or something. So how does that work in monopsy? So what's an example of that? Well, the original idea of monopsony was just like you described, that there'd be one employer in a town. But what we've come to learn over the years is that companies can work in unison to reduce labor market competition and jointly act like a monopsony, and that's where collusion comes in. Okay, so collusion, we hear about collusion in terms of geopolitics right now, but collusion in the labor market, how would you define that? Collusion comes in lots of different ways, and Adam Smith actually warned us in 1776 in The Wealth of Nations that whenever employers get together, they turn to the subject of how do they collude to suppress wages. And what Eric Posner and I focus on is collusion in terms of no poaching agreements, agreements not to hire each other's workers, which are common in franchise companies, non-compete agreements, which are another form of collusion where workers are required that they cannot go and work for a competing employer after they leave their employment. Now, I've heard of non-compete clauses in contracts for, you know, kind of higher-level workers, maybe white-collar workers, but your paper is focusing, and it's right there in the title, low-income workers, and in fact, you're going to be at a Hamilton Project event that talks about low-income workers. Why the focus on low-income workers when we're talking about non-compete clauses and poaching clauses in labor agreements? That seems unusual to me. Well, first of all, no poaching agreements should be illegal, and they are, but there's a gray area when it comes to franchises, and there the law is uncertain at the moment. On the non-competes, one can make an argument that perhaps high-skilled workers get specialized training, and it's in their interest and in their employer's interest to write a binding contract that prohibits the worker from going and using that training at a competitor. But that's not the case for low-wage workers who receive extremely little training. And what we find in our paper, we have really two new facts in our paper and three proposals. One of the new facts is that non-compete agreements are quite common for low-educated workers. Over 20% of workers with a high school degree or less are covered by a non-compete covenant on their current job or on a past job. So the reach of these non-compete agreements is quite wide and reaches to low-paid, low-skilled workers as well. And presumably, I mean, it's no surprise to think that low-skilled and low-income workers aren't going to pay a lot of attention to the terms of their labor agreement either, the way that probably a high-skilled worker would, right? That's a concern. And low-wage workers don't have the means to hire a lawyer to help them to interpret the contract for them, and they don't have the means to hire a lawyer and pursue a court case if they are charged with violating a non-compete agreement. So these agreements are very intimidating for low-wage workers. Can you outline the three proposals that you put forth here? 
The first proposal is that for workers who make less than the median wage in their state, non-compete agreements should be banned. And we urge state legislatures to pass this type of legislation. And if they don't, we would like to see Congress pass a similar type of legislation. Second, we would like to see Congress clarify that no poaching agreements are illegal, even when it comes to franchises. The courts can do that. The Justice Department can pursue cases. And if the courts don't act quickly, we'd like to see Congress act. And then third has to do with mergers of firms. And the current antitrust guidelines do not instruct the Justice Department to review the impact on the labor market. And we're seeing in many industries growth in the dominant firms, and this is restricting competition in the labor market. So we propose that the merger guidelines be updated to require that the Justice Department look at how mergers will affect concentration in the labor market. So I hear a lot about congressional legislation, about Justice Department, and it's interesting then that your co-author is Eric Posner, who's at the University of Chicago Law School. So how did the two of you come to collaborate on this project, an economist and a law professor? That's an interesting question. I've actually never met Eric Posner. And when I was invited to write a paper for the Hamilton Project, I thought what I really want to write is a legal proposal. I should work with a lawyer. So I asked my friend Cass Sunstein, who I had worked with in the Obama administration, to recommend someone. And he recommended Eric Posner, and he put me in touch with him. So how did you become interested in this issue of collusion in the labor market? I've been interested in it for quite some time. And I did work in the early 1990s on the impact of the minimum wage on the job market, which reached the surprising conclusion that modest minimum wage increases do not have an adverse effect on employment. In fact, in many cases, it helps companies to be able to recruit enough workers to fill their vacancies. So that got me interested in lack of competition in the job market and monopsony and employer collusion can explain that type of an anomaly. So I've been interested in this area for some time. When I left the White House in 2013, President Obama asked me to take some time off and then send him a memo on some recommendations that the government could pursue in order to help low-wage workers. And what occurred to me is that there is evidence of collusion. We don't know how widespread it is, but there was a very salient case involving nurses in Detroit where the hospitals colluded to suppress pay and to limit pay increases and to not raid from each other. So that made me think that perhaps this is more widespread. So I wrote the president a memo as he requested, and that led to a process which eventually uh, resulted in the Justice Department issuing new guidelines for personnel professionals stating very clearly that no poaching agreements and wage-fixing agreements in the labor market are illegal. We've been talking about the regulatory approach from the Department of Justice. So what is the state of play now with regard to the Trump administration and Congress? Well, at the moment, the jury is still out on how engaged the Justice Department is. The Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust has stated on a couple of occasions that they are investigating possibly criminal actions in terms of no poaching. They are following up on the guidelines that were issued in October of 2016, and we're anxiously waiting to see what comes from those investigations. President Trump ran on the argument that the economy is rigged against low-wage workers. I think the economy is rigged against low-wage workers. I don't think it's rigged the way that he claimed it was rigged. But if he actually does believe the economy is rigged against low-wage workers and wants to do something about it, I think this is an area that he should make a priority.
And we've been talking about the federal government role in this. Is there a state government role? There is a state government role, and several states have started to ban non-compete agreements, and I think that's an important step in the right direction. One of the difficulties is even though the states have banned them, companies often still include them in their employment contracts. There is no consequence for them for including such a clause, even though it's not enforceable and it could still intimidate workers. So I'd like to see there be some penalties associated with including these unenforceable agreements when they're unenforceable. And as you and your co-author draw attention to this issue and as attention spreads, is there any chance that, or is there any evidence that workers themselves are paying attention to this, are themselves seeking legal remedies? Well, there are a lot of heartbreaking stories that have come out of workers who switched jobs. There was a story about a nurse who moved from working for a radiologist to working at a veterans administration hospital and was sued by her former employer and spent years in court, cost lots of money, and was actually unable to change jobs. So I think that this is a problem which is affecting many workers. McDonald's and another fast food chain are currently being sued for no poaching agreements where workers tried to move from one fast food restaurant to another within the same chain and were denied that opportunity. Well, Professor Alan Kruger, I want to thank you for stopping by today to talk about your paper with Eric Posner, a proposal for protecting low-income workers from monopsony and collusion. Thank you. You can learn more about the paper and read it on the Hamilton Project's website, hamiltonproject.org. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Thanks also to our intern, Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.